And a lot of times when we're reading passages in the gospel which have a more or less explicit reference to the Old Testament, there's a certain intimidation factor at play, right? Where we can kind of be tempted to to kind of back away from these passages in favor of you know easier passages in the gospel which don't have again an explicit reference to the Old Testament. But in these moments, it's really important for us to not back away, but in a certain sense to lean into these passages. Because even though it might take work, and even though there might be sort of a learning curve to kind of get up to speed with regards to certain passages in the Old Testament, once we're able to make explicit this connection between the Old Testament and the New, these passages in the New Testament can come alive in a really beautiful sort of way. And you find us, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, which refers really famously to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so as a matter of background, in the context of the Old Testament, ancient Israel or ancient Palestine was divided into 12 regions corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel, which in turn corresponded to the 12 sons of Jacob. And so, for example, in the south, you had the regions of Judah and Benjamin, where you find such cities as Jerusalem and Bethlehem. In the north, you had the regions of Dan, Asher, Gad, and Manasseh. And then, of course, in the northeast, you had the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, what's interesting about the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali is that they existed right at the border of Israel, right? So right at the border between the nation of Israel and the foreign powers, basically. And so whenever these foreign powers would attack the nation of Israel, they would typically go through, again, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, which resulted, of course, in the people of this region being ravaged over and over again by foreign entities, which ultimately culminated in what's called the Syrian exile, which took place in the 9th century as a result of which many of the citizens of the lands of Zebulun and of Tali were forcibly extracted from their own hometowns and then scattered over the course of the Assyrian Empire. And at the end of the day, the net effect was that the lands of Zebulun and of Tali ultimately became this shameful blight on the history of Israel, such that apparently even amongst many scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, even though these people might still have believed in the eventual restoration of the nation of Israel, Many of the same people believe that this restoration would happen apart from the restoration of the lands of Zebulun and of Tali. Because the general consensus, again, amongst many scribes and Pharisees, was that these regions and the people contained therein were simply beyond hope. They were simply beyond salvation and redemption. And yet, in the face of all this difficulty, in the face of all this difficulty, tension, and strife, the Old Testament prophets, they retained hope. And in particular, Isaiah of all people issued this really famous prophecy with regards to the lands of Zebulun and Natali. And so basically what he said, just to kind of paraphrase, was that these people, these people who are shrouded in darkness, would eventually see a great light, which obviously speaks to the eventual coming of the Messiah, the ushering in of the Messianic age, and ultimately the restoration of Israel as a light to the nations in the sense of being this radiant witness to God's presence and grace in the world. Okay, now obviously that's a lot of background from the Old Testament, but it really helps us to understand, again, this key passage that we kind of said at the outset, Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, which refers again to the lands of Zebulun and of Tali. And so basically in the context of this particular story, Jesus Christ hears about the arrest of St. John the Baptist, as a result of which he essentially moves, right? So he moves from Nazareth to the town of Capernaum, which happens to exist in the land of Zebulun and of Tali. And the gospel is really explicit about the fact that the reason why Jesus does this primarily is to fulfill this great prophecy by Isaiah that we just cited earlier. But you'll notice that as the story continues, in the context of this particular move, he calls the first disciples, you know, so Peter, James, John, and his brother Andrew, so the first four leaders of the fledgling church. 
And the thing I want you to notice here is that in the absence of this historical context with regards to the 12 tribes of Israel and, you know, Zebulun and Naphtali that we just cited earlier, it seems like the reason why the disciples drop everything to follow Christ is because he's cast some spell. So it seems like it's magic, right? So he says to them, come follow me, and they drop everything again and follow him simply because of some magical compulsion. You see, once you understand this Old Testament context, you realize that the reason why the disciples drop everything to follow the Lord is not because of magic, it's not because of some spell, but rather because on a really practical level, they're simply blown away. Because of course, when the Lord calls them to himself, when he calls them to follow him in a stance of discipleship, they're not simply lowly fishermen. They're also residents of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. In other words, they are living in the very locus of Israel's shame. They are members of the black sheep of the Israelite family. And yet again, here's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls them to himself. And so in a certain sense, what he's basically saying to them is like, look, even though many people have perhaps given up on you, even though your own people may have given up on you, and even though as a result, you too may have given up on yourself on some level, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that I have not given up on you. I still believe in you. And what's more, when I invite you now to come follow me in a stance of discipleship, I'm not simply inviting you back into the club. I'm inviting you to a calling and a mission of greatness. I want you to be a key player in the restoration of the nation of Israel, beginning with the restoration of your very self. Okay, now obviously there's kind of a lot going on here, but hopefully you can kind of see where we're going with this, right? Because everything we've been saying to this point doesn't simply have historical significance, but it has immense practical value for us living on the ground level right now in the present day. Because if you think about it, all of us, without exception, we, we all have parts of our lives, parts of our hearts, which are still living in a certain sense in the lands of Zebulun and Otali, which is basically to say that all of us have parts of our lives and our hearts, which are deeply rooted in a deep sense of shame and rejection for a whole variety of reasons. And so, for example, perhaps people have done things to us in the past, in terms of past hurts, past wounds, wherever the case may be. Perhaps we ourselves have done things in the past in terms of sinful behavior, things we've done, things we've failed to do. And as a result, perhaps many people have rejected us, you know, like friends, family, people close to us. And perhaps even on top of that, we have rejected our very selves. But, you know, that said, I guess the thing I want to impress upon you, friends, is that if you're feeling like this, you're feeling trapped in a space of shame and, and rejection and personal darkness. As an important starting point, you got to realize that this prophecy by Isaiah isn't simply meant for the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, but it's also meant for you. Jesus Christ, the one living and true God, the Messiah himself, wants to be for you a great light, a great beacon to illuminate your steps in the midst of your own personal darkness to lead you to a stance of peace, healing, and restoration. Now, obviously, your own personal journey to become fully restored in Christ is precisely that, right? It's personal, it's unique, it's unique and specific to you as an individual. And it'll probably take time, right? Real healing takes time. We're not looking for quick fixes here. It's a really prudent thing to expect ups and downs, tough choices, taking a step back in favor of taking a step forward, that kind of thing. And certainly that particular subject is a different homily or perhaps even a whole series of homilies for a different day. Suffice to say that in a certain sense, the main takeaway message for our purposes today is to simply believe, to believe that God has not given up on us. And so therefore we are called and indeed commanded to never give up on ourselves, to trust and believe that what God has begun in time, he will ultimately bring to completion. And may God bless you all.